Welcome to Musicians Versus the World. I have with me Joel Dallow from the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Now, Joel has been a member of the cello section of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra since 1999 and currently holds the honorary UPS Community Service Chair. From 2016 to 2020, Joel served on the faculty at Georgia State University as artist affiliate and is currently the producer and host of the Cello Sherpa podcast, where he covers topics related to the journey from intermediate musician to the professional stage. In 2003, he established Riverside Chamber Players Incorporated and currently serves as artistic director and cellist. Riverside's mission is to present chamber music performances of the highest professional quality, providing artistic, educational, and cultural enrichment for the local communities. He has performed with the Chamber Music Festival of the Black Hills in Rapid City, South Dakota for four years, and he is here to talk with us today about ensemble playing, chamber music, and what it takes to be a professional musician. So Joel Dallow, thank you so much for coming and welcome to Musicians Versus the World. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. I love your podcast and I'm honored to be a guest on it. Oh, thank you. I love your podcast too. And so actually my first question is about your podcast. It is called The Cello Sherpa. What is a Sherpa? And why have you branded your podcast The Cello Sherpa? Well, it actually started over the beginning of the pandemic with so many months of sitting around. The symphony shut down for many months because we couldn't figure out how to have concerts safely, of course. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to figure out what else I wanted to do, how I wanted to spend my time, which I think a lot of us experienced in that downtime. A lot of us were so busy, right. we didn't really have a lot of time to think about what we were doing while we were busy. And then once everything stopped, it was a great time to reevaluate where we should put our efforts. Right. And so I decided the first thing I needed to do was to come up with a website and trying to come up with a creative name in some way that people would remember going through different things like the cello magician, the cello ninja, the cello <laughs> wizard, and then eventually landed on the cello Sherpa because a Sherpa is a guide. And you cannot make it to the summit of Mount Everest without a Sherpa, mm. but you also, they can't drag you up the mountain either. You have to be in shape. So Sherpa really seemed like the perfect name because as a teacher, we end up getting the students to do the work that they need to do, but guiding them on how to do it. And they can't do it without the guide, but they we also can't work magic and have them be successful without putting the things in place that they need to do. So it's a collaborative relationship. Mm. And so the cello Sherpa seemed perfect because this way we could talk about, I guide the students and hopefully we work together and successfully we reach the summit together. And what happened was after the website was created, the next step became a podcast. And the reason it became a podcast is because I was talking to my best friend about she wanted to do a podcast in her space. And I started to think about how I was a little envious, actually, and thought, you know, I've always wanted to start a podcast. I've been listening to podcasts since 2008. As soon as I figured out how to plug it into my car, that was how I got over my road rage driving <laughs> in Atlanta traffic. and. I always wanted to do a podcast, but I never really could figure out, well, what would I even do on a podcast? And then it sort of all came together. The Cello Sherpa, the Cello Sherpa podcast. This is a great way to share information in our profession. I just didn't see a lot of podcasts that were in this space and really felt that the best way that we could share our experience and try and make it easier for the next generation 
was to bring on as many different experts around the profession that would freely talk without having to pay them for a lesson mm-hmm. and give us great information about their experience and how they've been successful and hopefully help our next generation have an easier time pave the way through what's a very challenging profession. Mm-hmm. And so what are some of the things that are standing in the way of musicians now that are wanting to go from maybe the intermediate level to the next level, to the professional level? That's a great question. I think overall, I would say the biggest thing that stands in people's way is the lack of focus on fundamentals. So most of us, we want to play the music. We want to play this great music that we listen to. We we were inspired as a child by listening to this music, which is why we wanted to get better at it and why we maybe pursued it as a profession. But if you try and rush to the final step of playing the repertoire without all of the fundamentals that get you there, then you won't be successful at the highest level when you need to be. So that means a real concentration on etudes and scales and rhythm exercises all have to be done to really get this constant refining level that is necessary when you get to the highest level. Because when you get to the highest level, you can be a great musician, you can have a great sound, but if you're out of tune and your rhythm isn't very good, then it's going to be very hard for you to be considered refined enough at that level to be picked as a player to perform in an orchestra, for example. So I think that it's the rush to learn the repertoire without all of the fundamentals that we need to get there that stand in the way. On the flip side of that, what's also interesting is I've seen people that have so much natural talent not become successful either. So we all know there's people we went to school with. Everybody talked about them because they're so talented. They're so great at playing their instrument. But it became it was so natural for them that they didn't really have to work very hard at it. And a lot of them, you watch fizzle out right. because that that hard work is what gets you across the finish line. Mm-hmm. Well, there really is no finish line because you never really arrive. But at least whatever that benchmark of success is at each level of what you're aiming for. And so that that's another thing I found interesting, too, is it's almost better to have sort of a medium level of talent, but a really strong work ethic. And I think those are the people who end up being the most successful and then that really put the time into the fundamentals. And I say that because in my experience, many of the teachers that I had did not focus on the fundamentals. So for me, it was later getting out of school and starting to take auditions and trying to figure out why they weren't going well what I needed to work on, that was when I realized how important it was to really focus on the refining of fundamentals. And I hadn't done enough of that before trying to play the music. And that was standing in my way. So it was a process of learning after school, actually, (laughs) to really drill down more on those. And, And what I've tried to do is to build that more into my teaching through my own experience, where I focus a lot on the fundamentals with students, which is, let me tell you, it's not as fun. Right. But it makes it possible for you to do the things that you want to that are above your head. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So did you start early with your training? I did. I started when I was six. Both of my parents are pianists and both musicians. My mother is also a writer. My father is also a composer. And so music was kind of the family business. Mm -hmm. And from when I was about two years old, the story goes, I don't know because I don't remember, that my mother had a duo with a cellist by the name of Myron Lutsky. And I used to sneak downstairs or go to the top of the steps where they couldn't see me when I was old enough to walk and listen to them rehearsing at night when I was supposed to be sleeping. 
And so I was very drawn to the instrument from an early age. Mm -hmm. And I begged and begged and begged to play. And finally, at the age of five, they let me start on the piano. <laughs> so that, Those are good So parents. that I could learn. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it makes sense to me now. Yeah. But of course, at five, I was like, what? I want to play the cello. I don't want to play this piano. <laughs> well, especially if both of your parents play it. You're like, oh, I don't want to be like mom. Don't want to be like dad. I want to be my own person. Yeah, but it was great because it... The piano, in your first lesson, you go and you press the note and then something actually happens. Right. Like there's a note, whereas a string instrument, you have to learn how to pull that bow across the string to get a decent sound. And that can take many months to really be successful at versus just pressing a key down and having a note play. Mm -hmm. And it also teaches you how to read music. Right. Because at the age of five, when I started the piano, I don't think I was reading yet. Mm -hmm. So reading music was just another language. And I had to learn how to read in bass clef and treble clef and learn what the names of the notes were. So it was a really good introduction before I got started on the cello. Oh, yeah. I'm a pianist. I am full on start people on the piano. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'm all for that. I think your parents made a great decision. So when did you switch over to cello? I switched at six. Oh, <laughs> and one year. One year. <laughs> it was only one year. And I studied with Myron who was my first uh, first teacher. And he actually went to college with my parents. So that's how they knew him. Okay. And, and he lived in New York City. So we would drive from New Jersey into New York City for lessons every week. And I studied with him for about four years until it just became a lot driving into New York. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good. So then, um, so you started for four years. Now, what happened after that? How did you get to Atlanta? Okay, so after that, well, I would say even from... Starting around age eight, my parents started sending me in the summer to some sort of music camp. Okay. It started with one week at the, I think it was the ASTA, American String Teachers Association, one week camp. But they started doing that. And then every summer, I went to more and more festivals. And I ended up playing in the New Jersey Youth Symphony. And I ended up ultimately at the age of around 12. I went to Philadelphia and started studying with Orlando Cole and his assistant, Meta Watts, and started practicing, I would say, at 12, 13, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of four or five hours a day. Wow. So I was really driven to be successful at it. But I also had a teacher that was kind of mean. Oh. <laughs> so Orlando Cole's assistant was not very nice. She made me feel like five hours of practicing wasn't enough and that yeah, can you imagine? And so that was really challenging for me. And I sort of went through this crisis where I told my parents, I, I don't want to do this anymore because I was putting all this effort and this work into it and then going to a lesson and feeling berated and downtrodden for not doing things the right way. Oh. And so they kind of convinced me to stick with it. And I ended up switching to David Gaber, mm -hmm. who I interviewed in my second podcast of season one. It's a great interview, actually. And I went and studied with him for a little bit. And then I decided I went to Tanglewood in a summer and I had met a bunch of people who went to the Interlochen Arts Academy mm -hmm. and they were all talking about what a great school this was. And my parents had suggested in my sophomore year that maybe I could look at that school. But again, I didn't really want to leave home and I just was sort of comfortable where I was. But once I met all these people that had had such a good experience there, I decided, you know what, let's see if there's an opening. And I made a recording that summer and I sent it and they had one opening left and I got it. And I went to Interlochen for my junior and senior years of high school. And that was really the turning point for me. Okay. 
I think without Interlochen, I probably would have ended up doing something different for a living. Really? But yeah, but being around all of these creative artists, being in the middle of the woods where it snowed 17 feet a year and was freezing cold. So it was really motivating to stay in a warm practice room and practice and getting up every day and playing orchestra and and having music classes along with academic classes. I thought to myself, you know, if this is what it's like to be a professional musician, this is kind of cool. I, I think I'd like this playing music every day. Of course, not really understanding what the path ahead would be like, mm -hmm. but that was the turning point for me. And then after Interlochen, I attended the Manhattan School of Music for one year to go back and study with David Gaber because I had left in the middle of high school. But living in New York was really difficult for me. Even growing up 25 miles outside of New York, it was really difficult for me to transition from being in the woods of Interlochen to taking the subway every day, 60 blocks to get to Manhattan School of Music and take my classes there. And it was it was just not a good transition. Yeah. So I ended up transferring to the Peabody Conservatory, mm -hmm. which is where I studied with Stephen Cates and met some really great cellists there and felt like I had a lot of great competition around me. Some people who are, are very successful today on the cello also. And it was a great opportunity for me again to sort of get on that path. And when I finished school and graduated, I immediately got married and had a child and decided that I was going to pursue auditions. Wow. <laughs> so it was it was a little bit rough timing, but actually it gave me a motivation to really work towards something yes. because I knew that I had had a young family and I really wanted to be successful at trying to get an orchestra job. Mm -hmm. So I spent five years freelancing. We moved to the Philadelphia area. I got to play a lot with the Philadelphia Orchestra, with the New Jersey Symphony. I played with a chamber orchestra in Philadelphia. I played principal in some smaller orchestras like Reading and Delaware Symphony, which was a great job. Mm -hmm. In the middle of that, I was taking a lot of auditions and I, I got a job as principal of the Memphis Symphony. And so we went there for a little while, but that wasn't really, it was less than a season. It wasn't a great fit for me either. So went back to freelancing in the Philly area. And just kept plugging away. And I was coaching constantly with members of the Philadelphia Orchestra cello section. And they were really, really drilling me on the details. You know, mm -hmm. this note is a 16th note too long. That note's a quarter tone too sharp or, <laughs> or just a hair too sharp, a hair too flat. And really just picking and picking and picking at me so that I could really learn how to refine every little detail in an excerpt before putting it back together again and turning it into a piece of music. Mm -hmm. And so that was really influential to me working with those guys. And then after about five years of taking auditions, it was not easy. I landed a one-year position in Atlanta. And the person who I replaced for that one year uh, had taken a one-year leave and then decided to retire. So I had an opportunity to take the audition again for the full-time tenure track position. And I ended up ultimately getting that. And I can tell you also, that was my fourth audition for the Atlanta Symphony. Was it really? <laughs> so, yeah. First time I auditioned, there were seven of us that made it through to the semifinal round and they narrowed it down to two into the finals. And I did not make that cut, mm. but they ended up not hiring anybody. So about six to eight weeks later, they had another audition where I took the audition again. The semifinalists and finalists were invited back and I then advanced into the finals, and then they offered my colleague Brad Ritchie a one-year contract. Mm -hmm. And so 
I did not go back again for a little while. And then a, this one year opening came up. So for the third time I went and auditioned and I landed that one year opportunity. And then from there, I was able to get a permanent tenure track position, which having a year and a half in the orchestra and really understanding how the orchestra plays and working with my colleagues in the section was huge for giving me the opportunity to do well in that final audition because mm -hmm. I understood what I was focused on and what I needed to focus on to be able to be successful at that. Wow. And now you are tenured and you are on the committees that get to choose the new members of your orchestra. So what sort of things do you look for as a member of that committee in people who are doing auditions? Well, the most important thing is the knowledge of the repertoire. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think ends up separating people, certainly separates people in the later rounds okay. of the auditions. But what happens is because we're trying to listen to so many people and we're trying to have as fair a process as possible, we end up really listening to, I would say, five to seven minutes per person, which is just not a lot of time. No. It's not a lot of time when a candidate spends months preparing for something, flies here, buys a seat for their cello, a seat for themselves, puts the money into a hotel for two nights or whatever. Right. And then they show up and they maybe play five minutes. Mm -hmm. But in that round, when you're listening to all those people, the thing that really knocks people out are the fundamentals. So the fundamentals, and again, back to the fundamentals, <laughs> it's really, it's about being in tune and playing with good rhythm. Mm -hmm. Those are really the two most important things. Sound is very important, but sound is extremely subjective. People have different definitions of what's a good sound. And I would argue that at times intonation can also be subjective because it depends what key you're in and string players listen to things differently. So I think the first challenge is really making sure that you are playing your fundamentals at an extremely high level so that you play really well in tune and that you can maintain a consistent, steady rhythm. But once you get past that, you have to also be able to show that you understand the repertoire, that you understand what's happening around you. And there's a way of playing. If you sit down and play an excerpt and you can hear the rest of the orchestra in your head, mm -hmm. then surprisingly, that will convey to the committee because there's something about that, just hearing it and understanding how your voice fits in that translates to a committee from behind a screen. And it's brutal to play behind a screen because all of the deficiencies are what shine through. Mm -hmm. We're definitely not looking just to cut people, but those are the things that stand out that end up getting people eliminated. That's really what we're listening to, I would say, in the beginning the most is trying to separate out who's playing with the highest level of fundamentals. And also I'm listening to to make sure that there's some knowledge of the repertoire. But then as the rounds go on, you want more and more of that creativity and that person's individual voice, yet with an eye of what it's like to be part of a larger ensemble to show through. Yeah, I love that. I actually really love that you are looking for understanding that they understand that this is not a solo piece that I'm playing. I am playing a part, an excerpt of an ensemble. And you have so much uh, expertise and you have so much experience being a soloist and playing in chamber music and in playing in orchestras. And in each of those ensemble or each of those uh, groupings, the cello plays a different part, right? And so yes. you have to play those differently. Would you mind going into a little bit more detail what different jobs the cello plays in, let's say, a string quartet versus a symphony? Sure. Well, let's start with orchestra first, because okay. that's where most of my experience is. Mm -hmm. As an orchestral player, it's your job to fit into the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. 
And that starts with fitting in and blending with your stand partner, which then translates into blending into your section. And hopefully you're working towards not can I stick out and play the loudest in this section, but can I fit in with the other voices so that we sound like one cohesive unit? Mm -hmm. But then you translate that to the next step, which is the whole orchestra. How does our entire section with one voice fit into the whole orchestra? So your role is really one of learning how to adapt to everything that's happening around you. And it's less about you having an individual voice and your individual musicianship shining through. What's great about chamber music is it's a lot like orchestral skills because you have to listen to what's going on around you. You have to be extremely well prepared at knowing what's going on around you, writing in cues in your part, listening to recordings. I even like to sit down and before the first rehearsal and play with the recording so that you can again feel what those other voices are like around you. Mm -hmm. And so it involves a lot of the same skills, but you're generally, if it's a string quartet, you're the only voice. Mm -hmm. So there's a solo component there. But there's nothing to rely on. You don't have a conductor waving a beat pattern in front of you. So you don't have that to rely on. And you don't have section mates coming in at certain times to rely on to make sure that you are coming in on time and not spacing out and counting a measure wrong or anything like that. What you do have in place of the conductor is you generally have a first violinist. And that first violinist is the one who acts as the leader in place of a conductor. But they're not giving you a beat pattern in four or six or 12 or whatever your meter is. So you have to really know what's going on before you get into it. But it's a great training ground for what it comes to playing in an orchestra because it takes the same skills of listening to what's happening around you. And, and you have, as a cellist, you're setting that foundation usually. Unless you have a bass with you, you usually are laying the foundation. So your job is to lay that foundation and then know when to come out of that and be the solo voice. Mm-hmm. Something you don't really get when you're playing in an orchestra unless you're sitting in that principal chair and you get some solos. You don't get that solo voice. You get that solo voice as a section, but not by yourself. Right. So there's a diff- that's where those really differ, which for us as orchestral musicians, we really enjoy playing chamber music because it gives us an opportunity to flex that muscle in a different way than when we're playing in a section. Right. Now, as a soloist... You've probably played as a soloist. It's kind of terrifying if you don't sure do it is. regularly. <laughs> Absolutely it is. It's all, so, and I would say for me, it's probably where the most performance anxiety, which is something I've dealt with my whole career and many of us have, right. where that really rears its ugly head. And the challenge here is, and this can happen whether you're playing with a nine-foot grand piano and you're playing, let's say, a sonata that's cello and, and piano, mm-hmm. or if you're playing as a soloist in front of an orchestra, is as a string player, your sound can be absolutely buried by the volume around you. So if you're a cellist and you're playing with an orchestra, there's a different level of dynamic that you have to think about too. You can't necessarily play as softly as you would in a section because people might not hear you. So there's a scaling of dynamics that's different. And you are the star of the show when you're playing, not necessarily with a pianist, because that can be more collaborative like chamber music, mm-hmm. although you have the same issue with being buried by a nine-foot yes. grand's yes. volume. So that that's a challenge. But it's you you have the solo voice, so it's all about you and working with that accompaniment. So it's really stepping outside of the role of being the accompaniment or being the orchestral player. And, and being the voice that everybody's there to listen to, which is why I think it's probably the most terrifying. It's also really difficult if you don't do it every day. Right. So if you're a, if you're a soloist, 
and that's your living, you're used to that. If you're an orchestral musician, you get used to that. If you're a chamber music musician, you get used to that role. And the other roles have different challenges that you're not used to. But the, the daily practice of doing those things each day is what makes it more comfortable and makes it easier for you to succeed in that role. Hmm. What's your favorite? Uh, it depends what we're playing. <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely say it is not being a soloist. It's not my favorite. If I was younger or when I was younger and you asked me that question, I might have said that I wanted to play more solos okay. because when I think that's more of a young person's game, frankly. <laughs> but I do love playing chamber music and I do love playing in the orchestra. It's just that in an orchestra, your job is to play what's in front of you. Mm -hmm. And so you're not always playing the things that you want to play. You're not always playing the things that motivate you. And you're not always playing concerts even that excite you. So you have to learn how to find enjoyment in other things when it's not the most enjoyable part of what you do in your profession. But we all have things like that. I mean, there are parts of every profession that aren't as fun as other parts. So I would say, though, as my favorite, it's definitely chamber music and then orchestra playing Mm -hmm. on a regular basis or where I get the most enjoyment. Mm So when you're talking about the leader being maybe the first violin, how does the communication go? So for me as a pianist, I'm constantly watching the soloist. Like say I was accompanying someone, I'm constantly watching that person and there's little cues that they give me to let me know, okay, we're starting, okay, we're stopping. When it comes to chamber work and chamber music, what kind of nonverbal communication do you depend on to make sure that you're all together and that you're all on the same page musically? That's a great question. The first thing is showing up and really knowing what everybody's doing, Mm -hmm. even before the first rehearsal. And as I said before, that would involve looking at the score, watching the score while listening to a recording, playing with the recording, all of these different skills so that you go into that rehearsal like you've already had a couple rehearsals, only you've had them by yourself. So you've done your homework. So that's the first step. So if you know what people are doing, then you already have one step forward and how to read what's happening around you. Mm-hmm. Now, generally, and let's just go again, the string quartet's the easiest model, and that's sort of the base of Riverside Chamber Players is a string quartet. Mm-hmm. And our first violinist, who's usually Justin Bruns, who's our associate concertmaster in the Atlanta Symphony, is a fantastic leader. And he can show things with the raise of an eyebrow, with the movement of a scroll, with breath. Mm-hmm. We try and breathe together. And so the more you work with people, the more you get to read how they signal. And some people are better at leading than others. He just happens to be really good at it. The other great thing is as a string player and a pianist, as opposed to being a wind or brass player, you can watch people's hands. So once you learn how people use their hands and you can see what they're doing, you can get a sense of when that next finger is going to go down and try and match it. Mm. And there's also working out the roles in the group as to who's leading in certain lines. That's another way that really helps keep that ensemble together is understanding what's happening in the line. But maybe if you're playing a melody with somebody, you have to decide in a rehearsal, okay, are you going to lead this part or am I going to lead this part? Because if you both try and lead, it might not go very well. But if you decide who's going to lead it and then you learn how to breathe together Mm -hmm. and you know what that person is doing, that gets you a lot of the way there. Mm -hmm. And then the more you work with people, 
the easier it is to read what they're doing and to start to have a sense ahead of time and anticipate what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. So is there room for spontaneity or is everything completely planned out? No, absolutely. Without spontaneity, spontaneity, what fun would it be? (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping you would say that. Yes, good. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, a a lot of it, you start with a framework and you start with a plan. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to actual concerts, if you have somebody who's really good at communicating what they're doing, then, then spontaneity is what makes the concert so much more exciting than the rehearsals. And we do it in the same way by watching people. And again, it it can be as simple as just a look that someone gives you. And, uh, but a lot of it, I'd say the, the core fundamental to being able to play in a spontaneous way is to, is to breathe together Yes, and learn how to breathe together and then learn how to look at each other. Eye contact is huge, not be buried in your own part, which again, if you're well-prepared, you don't need to be buried in your own part. Mm -hmm. So that, that I think is without spontaneity, how is it even music? (laughs) That's a great answer. Great answer. Along those lines, do you have any stories or any wonderful experiences that you've had in any of your ensemble playing that you want to share with us? There's many stories, (laughs) but And so many experiences. But I think the ones that really stick out to me are actually before I got to the Atlanta Symphony. They're more foundational experiences that stick out in my mind. And so, for example, having the opportunity to attend the Interlochen Arts Academy, I worked with David Holland, who was taught there for, I think, 50 plus years. And he was the viola instructor there, and he was also the string orchestra director. And I think it was in 1989, which would have been my senior year, that we played Vaughn Williams' Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis, which is an incredible, rich string piece. And we spent many months working on this. Mm -hmm. And it was so inspiring that it was one of those moments where I thought to myself, I can't live without this. And that was a big turning point for me. And it was actually, I remembered it to be such a great performance and really working with tremendous musicians from those years that I was at the Academy, that when they celebrated 50 years at the Academy, they tried to pick enough of the performances over 50 years to fill basically two CDs. They actually picked that performance as one of them. And David Holland said how it was one of his most memorable years at the Academy. So that was a really, really great experience and really a turning point for me. Yeah. You know, I also have another story if you if you want to know. Yes, absolutely I do. (laughs) Okay. This is kind of a, a, a very different type of story, but in again, it was either the summer of 88 or 89. I don't remember because I attended Tanglewood in both summers. The Tanglewood Music Festival had a younger program uh, that was for students. They also have a fellowship program that was for college students, but this was in high school. And the conductor at the time was A.G. Oi, who went on to be the music director for about four years of the Minnesota Orchestra. And before our first concert, he gave us a very long speech about, he said, do not stop playing unless I stop conducting. He said, I don't care if the theater is burning down and people are running around screaming, you don't stop playing until I put my arms down at my side. And I thought, what's, I mean, why are we even talking about this? What a strange thing, right? Mm -hmm. So we get to the first concert, Beethoven's Fourth Symphony, 
quiet opening. We get about 30 bars in and somebody in the audience starts screaming at the top of their lungs. And yeah. What? <laughs> so we keep playing. We kept playing because he kept conducting. And the person kept screaming and kept screaming to the point where he had to put his arms down and stop the concert. Oh my. And it was almost like he knew that this was going to happen. But it's such a striking moment in my memory because I can only think of probably half a dozen times that a piece in a concert, in any concert that I've ever played, has stopped. Right. And that was one of them. And I and I was a student at the time. Okay, wait. <laughs> what was wrong with the person? Why were they screaming so much? Nobody knows. They ended up walking that person out. And they actually walked that person. It was It's an outdoor sort of tent. I mean, they called it a tent, but it was an outdoor facility. Uh -huh. So they walked that person out. And then I remember at one point he went to put his arms back up to start the symphony again. And then the, you could hear the person screaming in the background. And he put his, his arms down again <laughs> to wait until... Until we had complete silence to start. <laughs> so, Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so while you were telling this story, I thought for sure it was some sort of Tanglewood lesson that they were doing. Like, I thought, like, for sure they had a plant out there that was actually starting to scream. But it was like a real person having a real crisis. It was a real concert for real people. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, it's funny that you say that because that never occurred to me, even reflecting on this story <laughs> all these years later. It never occurred to me that maybe that was a lesson. No, it was it was real. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, I first off hope that person was OK. Obviously. I think they were. <laughs> yeah, hope so. And way to go. Not stopping. That's incredible. What a great story. <laughs> what a great story. You know, actually, that you just reminded me of one other story where we were playing an educational concert. This was only a couple seasons ago in the Atlanta Symphony. So I have a good Atlanta Symphony story. <laughs> and we were playing Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony and the lights went out. <laughs> so the, the auditorium was pitch black in the middle of us playing this movement. And, you know, we kept playing. Wait, this is for an educational and one? So there were kids? It was for an educational there were children concert. In there? Yeah, it was, I think it was at Lassiter High School. And so it was their hall. And so it was all um, high school students. And the lights went out. And <laughs> I, when I think back to it, and I remember feeling like that the lights went out for like two minutes, but it was probably like 20 seconds. Uh -huh. And I remember everybody just kept going. And even myself, I couldn't see anything because it was pitch black. My mind immediately knew what to play. And it was the weirdest experience because I, if you had told me, we're going to turn the lights out and you're going to have to remember what you're playing, I would have gotten in my head and forgotten. Yeah. And we just kept going. And then the lights turned back on and we kept going and just got back with the conductor. And the kids were amazed. And honestly, so was I. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible you were able to do that. Yeah, it was really, yeah. I'm glad I'm glad I thought of that story because it's good to have one from the Atlanta yeah. Symphony too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet those kids, they're going to remember that. Here's another kind of strange question, but there's a person out there that has never heard any chamber orchestra music or chamber string quartet or any sort of ensemble music, and you could choose one to recommend them to start with. Which one would you choose? Okay. I thought about this because luckily you gave me this question ahead of time. Yeah, I thought it was a mean I question. I would not. <laughs> it would be a tough question to answer on the spot, and it's really hard to come up with one, but yeah. if I had to pick one... I probably would say Dvorak's American Quartet. Mm -hmm. Why? Because Dvorak's melodies in chamber music are just luscious and beautiful. 
And I think that one of the composers we've probably played the most in Riverside is Dvorak <laughs> because, he, and it's so accessible and so beautiful and so inspiring that I, I think that people would instantly be inspired by that. I can come up with other pieces too, but I think that would be at the top of that my list. That would be the top. Perfect. Yeah. Now, same question for a symphony or for orchestral music. Oh, that's a hard I one too. I know. I know. It depends <laughs> on what mood you're in, right? Yeah, it's also really hard after a lifetime of playing in an orchestra to understand where somebody's coming from that has no experience listening to something and what they would find beautiful. Right. Well, I'll, can I give you a couple on this one? Absolutely. <laughs> You've got like so, centuries of repertoire to choose from. Yeah, I mean, Barber's Adagio is incredibly oh, beautiful. Is, yes. Of course, people know it because it's been in movies mm -hmm. and depressing movies, um, <laughs> but also very accessible and very beautiful. It is. Mahler's Adagietto to his symphony number no. five is kind of in that same vein mm -hmm. if you're looking for something along those lines. Gorgeous. I personally love Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique. <laughs> like the head bouncing off. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's just the story behind it. And then it was one. And <laughs> I mean, people don't necessarily know about the head bouncing, <laughs> but, but the the story, the pro, like the story that goes with the music is really kind of cool. And I just think he, he evokes all this different elements of sound that a lot of composers at that time didn't really get. Yeah. Agreed. Um, but I'm also, I'm most partial to Mahler as a composer. Mm -hmm. Mahler is so great to play. And I think that John Williams has stolen so much from Mahler because Mahler wrote again, amazing, luscious, beautiful melodies. The music's very hard to play. Mm -hmm. But if you're a little more adventurous for your first listen, I would say Mahler Symphony Number no. One hmm. is a great is a great starter. And then, of course, all the Beethoven symphonies. I mean, Beethoven Five, the standard things that people have heard. They, and if you walk around during Christmas time, you hear the Nutcracker everywhere. Of so Tchaikovsky. Of there's so there's a lot of those kinds of popularized types of classical music that I think a lot of people would find imme would immediately gravitate towards because of how easily accessible they are to listen to. Mm -hmm. What sort of advice do you have for intermediate or up-and-coming musicians if they want to do what you're doing, if they want to be a chamber musician or if they want to be an orchestral musician, what sort of last-minute advice do you have for them? I would say learn how to succeed from your failures because the toughest thing in this business is the constant rejection that you get. And people criticize you to make you better. So you have to learn first how to internalize that criticism and turn it into something better. And, and you are trained really to be so highly critical of everything that it can be a little bit daunting mm -hmm. because for me, and I'll just put this out there, my audition for Atlanta was my 25th audition mm. before I landed. And that was a one-year position that I landed. So this was not easy for me at all. So I had to learn that when you 
fail at something. It feels like a failure at the time. You don't advance at something. You don't get the job. You don't get into a school that you want. You don't get into a festival that you want. You don't win some competition. You have to learn how to take that experience and turn it into something positive. Because if you don't, it will destroy you. And so what I tell people is, look, you've had a bad experience. Take that few days or a week, wallow in self-pity, because we all need that. Of course. And you have to survive somehow. But then pick yourself back up and see what you can learn from that. Maybe you have a recording of that experience that you can listen to. Maybe you have a judge that can give you some feedback to let you know why something didn't go well, which hopefully people will do, or a teacher or somebody that can help you so that you can learn, what can I do better? What did I do before that audition that led to that result? And what can I change next time so that I have a better result? And sometimes it's really out of your hands too. I mean, if you go play an orchestra audition and you play really well and you don't get past the first round, well, that committee just didn't happen to like what you did on that day. It doesn't necessarily mean you're a failure. On the flip side of that, back in the pre-COVID days, when we used to have auditions, there'd be a waiting room for every hour. So you would play, then you'd go sit in a waiting room. And then one by one, people would come off of the stage who played and everybody would say, hey, how did it go? I can tell you the people that said, it went great, always got caught from that round. Because self-reflection is one of the most important tools to being successful at this. And if you think it went great and it really didn't, you're not doing what you need to to be successful. Wow. You're not taking the steps you need to towards progress. You have to be able to... I, I never felt that way in any audition that it went great. I always felt like things could be better, which is challenging because when you spend your entire profession picking apart and criticizing everything... It's hard for that not to spill into every facet of your life. Right. <laughs> so, because we're so wired that way from an early age. And you don't want to look at the world through that lens, but we all end up defaulting to the lens of how we spend most of our time. So, you know, if you spend time in a profession that's really difficult emotionally, then a lot of people tend to shut down emotionally. If you spend time in a profession where the way you get better is by criticizing every little tiny thing then it's hard not to look around the world and criticize everything you see around you. So you have to find some balance in your life too. But I would say most importantly, learn how to succeed from your failures. And that applies to everything in life. And that way you learn and you keep moving forward. You cannot succeed without failing. I love it. That's fantastic advice. Thank you for that. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for that (laughs) advice. And um, Joel Dallow, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing your your wonderful stories and your advice and your expertise. And if anybody is interested in hearing more about you and more from you, um, I highly, highly, highly encourage them to listen to your podcast, The Cello Sherpa. So Joel, thank you so much. And it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure also. Musicians vs. the World is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. A very special thank you to Joel Dallow of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra for sharing his time and his expertise and his music with us today. I also want to give a special thanks to Michael Kurth, composer-in-residence for the Riverside Chamber Players of Roswell, Georgia, for letting us feature his compositions in today's episode. 
You've heard Torcedura Azul, Boogie Alarm, and There Came a Gentle, performed by the Riverside Chamber Players and composed by Michael Kurth, and shared today with permission. If you'd like to learn more about Joel Dallow and his podcast, The Cello Sherpa, or if you'd like to hear more of Michael Kurth's music, we will have links to all of those resources in our show notes on our website, frostedlands.com slash musicians versus the world. Musicians vs. the World is hosted and edited by me, Christine Smith, and our producer today is Russ Wilkes. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss out on any future conversations. Also, if you're more of a visual person and are interested in seeing our faces, you can now find us on YouTube on our very own Musicians vs. the World YouTube channel. And if you'd like to help us reach more people that may be interested in today's topic, share this episode with them or leave us a nice review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you need to reach us, we would love to hear from you. And you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Or send us an email at info at Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. <laughs>